Hi, good morning everyone. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh and today we're talking with Justin Velgas in Sendai in the Tohoku area. He's got lots of great insights into travel in the area and uh, community building and we'll be right back. So stick around. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You can find out more information about me at inboundambassador.com and have a look at buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh if you want some bonus material and to support the work that I'm doing. Hi, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining. Um, as usual, if you have a question or comment, make sure to write it and we will try to fit it in below. We have travel expert, sake expert, and someone interested in the haunted places to visit in Sunday. We've got lots of interesting things to talk about. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thank you, Joy. It's a real pleasure. So originally you're from San Francisco area, California, is that right? That's correct. Yes, I grew up just outside San Francisco, went to school in San Francisco. So, and you know, I didn't really move around. That was just kind of my base until I came to Japan, which we'll eventually get to. <laughs> yeah, you, you told me that you felt like maybe growing up in that San Francisco area, you had more connections to Japan. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, America, the, the mainland America is uh, just so big. You get a lot of Americans here in Japan. We have about 400 or so here in Sendai, but we're all from different places. The East Coast and the West Coast, the culture, the vibes very different. The middle of America, very different in Alaska or Hawaii, where you're from. Also, um, you know, just different cultures. On the West Coast, you get a lot of Asians mixing up. Our Chinatown is most famous, but we have a J Japantown, a Koreatown. And just, you know, seeing Asians all around me, but also not quite understanding exactly what language are they speaking or why you know eating with chopsticks or just simple stuff like it was all new to me and something i you know you're always attracted to what's different so i think that probably had some kind of impact on me yeah um i i feel similar growing up in hawaii we have a, a so much connection to japanese culture and food and traditions um we have a hello from elizabeth ann who's just joined us from facebook thanks elizabeth um, you also said originally you came uh, in Yamaguchi Prefecture, so you haven't only lived in Sendai, you've lived in other areas, is that right? Sure, so my first time to Japan was in college, I guess, um, you know, community college or junior university, they, they call it, I guess. And um, it was a cheap way to get to Japan. I didn't have a lot of money, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich kind of thing. And my parents said, if you want to go to Japan, you got to pay for yourself. <laughs> And I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so I found a volunteer program called Camp Adventure Youth Services. And it's quite interesting. Um, this program um, is connected with U.S. military bases, not only Japan, but around the world, because U.S. has bases all around the world. And you can choose where you kind of want to go. And you're basically a summer camp counselor, playing games with the kids, singing with the kids, going on little field trips. And um, as military families, they have to move around a lot. So, you know, the kids didn't have like any mental problems or anything like that, but just their situation, when they were sad, they'd be really sad or they got angrier, quicker. And so they just need a little bit more attention. You know, sometimes the parents were deployed or something like that. So it was um, just really interesting and great way to come to Japan. And I was there in Yamaguchi, which is about, I guess, an hour train ride from where you are. Right. Very close. You were yeah. in Iwakuni, right? I imagine. Yeah, Iwakuni yeah. is military base there, mm -hmm. and I was living on the base. And it was really like a small America. You know, this was back in 2009, and but it probably hasn't changed that much. When you're on a U.S. base in Japan, and probably anywhere in the world, they make you use U.S. dollars. <laughs> and so I had to have yen when I went outside the base, and then dollars inside. And I remember one time... I went to some ramen shop on base, and I only had $4, US dollars, but I had like $200 worth of yen. And I said, can I just give you a thousand yen? Here's 10 bucks. I, I don't want to go to the ATM, which was like all the way across the base. And they said, no, 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 we can't take it. <laughs> just freaked out. Yeah, I, I think around 2009, I would have still been doing triathlon, and we used to do Ooh. a triathlon on that base. 
and it's a Air Force base, so you've got the jets <laughs> flying in and out. And I, I remember being on the bicycle going around, and the jets were flying, and I felt like I was in Top Gun. It was awesome. I loved it. it. Yeah, I remember, you know, we got there super late. We get on the bus, we come in like midnight and we sleep in these little barracks, which are basically like, you know, business hotel rooms. Um, and then I wake up the next morning to one of those jets. I didn't know it was an Air Force base. It's a combined U.S.-Japan Air Force base. It's quite large. And I see the fire shooting out of the jet in the back. And it's a... <laughs> that was my morning wake up call. <laughs> so I did that for about, you know, three months, um, two and a half months. This is a, you know, free way to get to Japan. But, oh, they put us to work, working 40, 45 hours a week, meetings on Sunday. So basically I was only going out the base on weekends kind of thing, you know, into Kyoto and Osaka. And I, I did get to go to Hiroshima, but time was so limited. It was like a day trip to Hiroshima. So, you know, we just saw like the Peace Dome and that kind of stuff. First impression of Japan, hot. It's really hot in summer and it's really hot and humid down south. And then um, this will be a reoccurring theme as I tell you my Japan stories, but um, weather is very important for me as a Californian, probably as a Hawaiian as well. You know, we don't like too hot, we don't like too cold. Sometimes we got to deal with it. So that was Camp Adventure. Um, yeah, very, very fun, and it left an impression. I did want to go back to Japan. I just, you know, confirmed, wow, this is really interesting. I spoke a little bit Japanese at the time. I'd started studying, but for me, when I... And then became, it looked like you went to Akita next, so totally yeah. different part of Japan, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went back to San Francisco, and then, you know, um, keep studying. We had a partnership relationship with Akita, but I didn't know anything about Akita. I didn't even want to go to Akita. So I wanted to go to Oita, which is Kyushu, close, you know, close to Hiroshima, um, because my senpai, you know, the, my older friend went there. And I don't know anywhere in Japan, you know, like most people. Oh, you hear about Tokyo and Kyoto, but you don't really know the geography. And um, I signed up. I did all my paperwork with San Francisco State University where I studied. And they said, OK, you're in. You're going to Oita and, you know, next semester. And then March 11th. Uh, 2.46 p.m. 2011, that was when the Great East Japan earthquake happened. You know, I was in America, and, you know, that's the long story, all that stuff happened, but um, long story short, I couldn't go to Oita because all the U.S. students were required by the U.S. government to come back. Didn't matter if you were in Hokkaido or Okinawa, all of them went back because of the radiation concern. And then I was no longer on the top of the list. The people that returned got priority. They said, okay, Justin, looking at your poor Japanese skill and positions available, there's only one spot that opened. You want to go to Akita or you want to not go to Japan? So I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> but I'm so happy I did. It's a different part of Japan. You know, um, you get to see a lot of nature and traditional festivals here in Tohoku, uh, something I just had no image of. And they spoke Japanese, of course, but they have this really strong dialect. I still don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's so interesting because I was a jet in Oita. Oh, so wow. We've, we've had a few connections over the years. Um, and when I wanted to go to Oita because my family was there, my dad had remarried and moved there, and I had half-brothers growing up there. Um, they were like, Oita? Yeah, go ahead. You know? <laughs> that's where you want to go so but then you ended up not going to Oita going to Akita a whole beautiful different area of Japan yeah, and then you came back on jet to Sendai in the next yeah, phase exactly. is that right you kind of fell in love with Tohoku but as a foreigner there's not a lot of job opportunities especially at that time and um, also again as a Californian the weather is so important um, down south Yamaguchi was too hot for me Akita too cold, <laughs> too much snow. But I like this area, so I looked at the biggest city, Sendai. I had gone back once, I graduated in 2013, and a couple months into it, from April, I was in Sendai, um, living my dream as a JET program ALT, teaching English at elementary school and junior high school. So this is my third time to Japan, I've been living in Sendai since 2013. Wonderful. And just this month, you have your TEDx virtual walking tour of Sendai, <laughs> yeah. which has yeah. just been released and I've shared it on my channels. It's so fun 
Thank you so much for doing that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your walking tour? Sure. So I, I just love history. And during this TEDx events, um, it had to be online. And they said, okay, just send a pre-recorded video. Let's do it in a fun way. And I just, you know, just, you'll see the video later, but um, I just walk around town. I want to just really try and get people to think about why history is important and how to really rediscover it. It's quite easy. You know, history is all around us. But as I say in the video, it's, it's kind of hidden. You have to think like a detective or you have to think of things like, okay, as I mentioned, this fish, um, what is it called? The fish market park, you know, Sakana Machikoen. It's like, okay, well, there's no fish here, but where did the name come from? Or my hometown I grew up in is called Pleasant Hill. Okay, well, where's the hill? Okay, there's only one hill in town. That's probably it. So things like... Um, Place names are really important. Things like streets. Here in Sendai, we were destroyed in World War II by an air raid. But the streets don't really change. They just rebuild, and they're still there. So even 400 years ago, most of the layout of the city has not changed. You know, all the buildings are new, but not the streets. So little clues like this is something I wanted to just kind of, you know, poke at people. Hey, why don't you know about your city? You don't have to be experts, but living in Japan or living in another country when you learn about the city you're living in, you feel more connected, right? You Everything starts to make sense. Oh, this is why da 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 or this is why da 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 We have a uh, neighborhood called Old Temple Lane. There's no temples there. And then across the station, there's a neighborhood called New Temple, right? So you have to figure out what's the connection between the old temple and the new temple. And if you want to know the answer, it's in the video. So do check that out. Yeah, that that was awesome. And that reminded me of my talk with Asby Brown, who wrote a book about Japanese temple building. And he said one of the reasons traditionally they were built to lock in place and no nails was mm -hmm. so they could be dismantled and moved to a new place if necessary. And Ooh. so when I'm watching your video, I'm like, Maybe they did that. I would love to visit that temple and see if it's taken apart and put back together the same beams because that wood is so valuable, right? I've never heard that before, but here in Sendai, um, we have Date Masamune, which is the kind of the feudal lord, the founder here. And he, there's some temples and some shrines he just fell in love with. He was born in Yamagata and then he moved to North part of Miyagi, and then he came to Sendai. And some of the shrines and temples, he just took with him. You know, uh, more American, but what's the British phrase, moving house or something like when you move? He literally moved his house. <laughs> very, very fascinating. Yeah, but It's wonderful. And I love that, that part of your, well, you have so many great insights in your walk. Um, there's also another part that reminded me of another talk that we had in the series so far, um, mm -hmm. with Matt Alt and Hiroko Yoda, who, oh. who were talking about yude, ghosts. Yeah. And how there's some shrines in the center of Tokyo which have never been moved, even though all the big modern buildings were built around it. Mm -hmm. And because of superstition and people were having bad luck who were trying to move it. And then you pass through one of the tiniest shrines and it's right in the middle of all the buildings. And I was wondering, maybe they had a similar like superstition about moving it or the people who tried to move it had bad luck. So there were so many great connections brought up by other talks in the series. So I loved it. Great fun. Wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. And your whole idea about exploring your own neighborhood and becoming a detective mm -hmm. and researching why this is named this street or why this shrine is here or this building is here, right? Like it, it helps you appreciate where you're living more. And I, I thought that was a beautiful expression. And of course, people can try that wherever they are, anywhere in the world. You know, there's two reasons I really got into it. I'd always loved history, you know, even in the U.S. When I first came to Sendai, it's probably the same when you go to a new country. It's kind of hard to make friends, right? You're in a new city. A lot of people are young when they move. And I wanted a way to connect with different people. So I realized, hey, if I could talk about the city or if I know some good restaurants, 
you know, food and stories always connect people. And it wasn't long after I just started studying about the local history that I joined the volunteer tour guide group called Gozain. And Gozain is, it means kind of like welcome. It's a dialect word here. And, oh man, they just, uh, they just taught me so much about history and the city. And I'm still a member after, what, six years <laughs> of working with them. And yeah, if you come to Sendai, you can get a tour from them. Uh, go onto their website and apply, and we'll be happy just to show you around. It's uh, English tour guiding. So, um, yeah, they, thanks to them and also thanks to volunteering at the museum, I had other people teach me there. So it's not like I just picked it up by myself. I picked it up from different resources. I've had a lot of sensei, I guess you could say. But uh, it's just such a fascinating city. And here in Sendai, it's like not too big and not too small. You have all the convenience of a large city. You know, you have the supermarkets and movie theaters and stuff like that. But uh, it's a small town feel. The people will go to the same places. We have a huge shopping arcades. And if I walk the shopping arcades, probably every three times I walk it, I run into someone I know. It's that kind of town. And it's like, this never happens, even in my small little town, because everyone has like cars, right, back in the U.S., but you can meet a friend, it is a wonderful feeling. And it's not even like, whoa, because it happens so much. Every week I'm running into someone at the arcade or the station or just, you know, out in town. And it's a wonderful feeling. You, you feel really connected with the history and you feel very connected with the people here. And I just I just love it. And the weather's good, too. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about Sendai since, since we're talking about walking tour from your TEDx talk. Um, so I'm showing on screen right now the experience Sendai activities. You can go to a festival workshop. You can go to the Oyster Paradise half-day foodie tour. Um, there's a lot on offer. Are these still available during coronavirus or are they kind of on pause right now? Most of these programs, um, what you're referring to, yeah, the Sendai experience program. Thank you for doing that. Um, yes, we're offering most of the programs right now uh, through the website. This is where I work right now with the Sendai Tourism Convention International Association. It's my job to connect with different companies here and basically advertise their programs or create new programs with them. If um, you know somebody is not available, it will say in the description whether it's available or not. Or we just give a quick call, a message, and we can connect with the um, operator and double check things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of things to do since Sendai. We have the big city here in the center. We have a lot of hot springs up in like Akyu and Sakunami, the kind of foothills. We also have the ocean. So um, you can go surfing and you can go skiing, you know, in the same city, which is really rare, I think, and very um, something special here. Are the snow sports, is that still going on now or is it stopped? We're doing, yeah, we're doing the, here the coronavirus, of course, happening, but, um, Compared to other places, very low. I think we're having like one or two a day or something like that. We still have to be careful, of course. Um, outside is always the safest option. We have a small ski resort called Spring Valley here or Izumigatake uh, Mountain. And they have something new called an airboard. And I haven't seen it myself yet. So these are, I guess, invented in Switzerland. It's like sledding for adults. It's like woven fabric on like a sled with, you know, I guess there's air inside it. It's just like a super fast sled. And that's something that they have that, I think it's the only one in Tohoku and maybe only one of two in Japan. And then they also do like night skiing and it's only about 40 minute bus ride from like the city center. So we have so many wonderful things here. We don't have any like big attractions in Sendai, but we have a lot of small and medium things and a lot of nearby um, attractions. So when you're coming here, you just hop around to Tohoku, and it is very, very convenient. We have a lot of repeaters. I think once people come to Sendai, they will fall in love with it, especially if they have a local person guide showing them around. The back alley bar hopping, the izakaya uh, dinners, I imagine these kinds of indoor things are a little bit difficult right now. Um, yeah. But maybe by the time we see inbound tourism coming back, maybe next spring, Mm -hmm. um, maybe things will be more possible, but you also have like, um, a helicopter tour <laughs> and a cycling tour. So there's some things that maybe you can start a little bit sooner. Yeah, Is definitely. That right? mm -hmm. yeah um, some of the programs you're referring to 
um, our thanks to our DMO here in Outbound Sendai Matsushima. And you actually interviewed one of the persons, Jess, Jess Hallam. Jess Hallams, yeah. Yeah, I still haven't got to ride the helicopter myself yet. <laughs> but there are a lot of interesting things here, and they have, you know, they're geared towards foreigners, so they have some of the best programs, I feel. Um, you know, cycling tours and these bar hopping tours. And now, actually, we're working on some programs for more night contents, um, you know, again, for the, for the future, not right now. But not only bar hopping, but, you know, some kind of form of entertainment or how do we attract these, like, VIP customers that, you know, that spend a lot of money or something like that. Well, here's, like, a thing. I don't know about Hiroshima as well, but, um, you know, we're both into tourism. And someone asked me, like, last year, okay, I have $1,000. The client will pay $1,000. What kind of program can you do for a thousand dollars? And it's like, can we even do anything? Kind of thing. Like, you know, what would you do for a thousand dollars? So we need to start thinking like this because these people are coming to Japan, but um, can we actually welcome them? Kind of thing. So that's something the DMO is working on. That's something I'm trying to push as well in you know my my role as well. That is so true. Um, having a kind of price point um, that hits lots of different travelers um yeah. so for example we want to offer something to budget travelers but we also want to offer something to families and middle budget and we also want to have at least one or two plans for the luxury market right mm -hmm. so having that variety of offerings definitely is a great way to go forward for a dmo or a travel agent we have to get the, the tourists at the different price markets, but also we need to welcome all the tourists. You know, I work kind of government role with the Tourism Association, so we want everyone here. If you're an operator, sometimes it's different. You know, you have to think of your target market or some people, uh, maybe hotel or restaurant or something. Oh, I don't want this backpacker that comes in and buys a coffee and stays for four hours or something. That might not be good for money, but often these backpackers going around are like the biggest bloggers you can get. So if they're staying at your hotel, they're taking pictures, they're putting it online. So that might not equal a lot of money, but that's gonna pay off really quick, especially in the long run. So we need to think like that. How can we use these different types of travelers for our benefit and also what can we offer them? It's really a give and take situation. And uh, especially like you were talking before about having free tours. So having the group like the Gozeng group who offers free tours around the city, mm -hmm. if your city, if your destination has some free options that people can join, plus, you know, different price point paid options, mm -hmm. that just in terms of destination branding, in terms of the local people trying it or the local people recommending it because it's free, oh, just go try it. It doesn't risk anything, right? Um, yeah. I think that's a huge way forward for, you know, tourism in general, but also sustainable tourism because yeah. it, it makes people stay longer. And we know if people stay longer in a certain destination, that that's more sustainable because the money stays more in the local area. It goes more to local shops and eateries, right? Exactly. Um, here in Sendai, what most tourists are doing is they'll stay one night. They'll ride our Lupul Sendai sightseeing bus. It hits a lot of the main attractions here in Sendai, you know, our famous Osaki Hachiman Shrine. A lot of things are related to Date Masamune, so he built that shrine. He has a really beautiful mausoleum. You can go to the castle sites. Um, we have MediaTek. It's a very famous architecture um, piece designed by Toyo Ito, a very famous architect here in Japan. So people go ride the lupul, they'll eat gyutan, which is our grilled kind of beef tongue. We have a lot of wonderful dishes that just happens to be the most famous. And then they'll go maybe to a side trip to Matsushima, considered one of the three most beautiful places in Japan. And it really is really beautiful. It's a pine-covered island dotting this wonderful, majestic bay, only about 35-minute train ride away. Yamadera is also close, about an hour away. It literally means, you know, mountain temple. You can climb up a thousand stairs and see these little temples here. But most people are only staying about a day and, you know, one night, I guess, and then kind of moving on to somewhere else. We need people to stay longer, and I'm, you know, I'm just trying to think, how can we do that? We face a lot of challenges. We don't have a lot of operators here in the city. We need to make our tours more accessible or easy to join, not like make a reservation two weeks in advance. Like, you know, what can I do tonight? What can I do um, tomorrow kind of thing? 
So we definitely have our challenges. And one of them I feel maybe unique to Sendai and Tohoku is the locals don't really know about the city that much. Um, so a lot of their friends are coming. You know, everyone knows their favorite restaurant or cafe. You don't have to be a history expert, but, you know, what can you recommend? Okay, Lupo, Sendai, Matsushima, Gyutan, Castle. What else is there? I think we need to look at places like Tokyo. I mean, we, we can't compare to Tokyo, but now when tourists go to Tokyo, they don't say, I love Tokyo. They say, I love Harajuku or I love Shibuya. They'll tell you the neighborhood that they fall in love with. And we have a lot of, you know, much smaller scale. But we have we have a little temple district. We have our kind of uh, nightlife entertainment area. We have the old castle town. So I think um, kind of mini branding these neighborhoods, getting people to move around and repeaters a chance to explore more is something I want to work on. And I have been working on with a couple of our, our operators. Yeah, nice. And that whole idea of getting locals on board to discover their own neighborhood, to suggest places in their own area, that's yes. huge in terms of sustainable branding. Um, what we in sustainable tourism, what we always try to do is try to find value for local people in terms of tourism. So it's not just about the people coming in who benefit, but how can the locals appreciate what they have as well. Um, so for example, Kyoto has had bad press because before coronavirus, they were just overrun. Locals oh. were really unhappy. Um, they couldn't appreciate the good things about their local markets or their local temples. So maybe having times when only locals can go. Ooh, and then it's not open to the outside public until other times. Being from Hawaii, we know about Kama'aina, value. So as local residents of Hawaii, if you have an ID, you can get discounts. You can stay at hotels a little bit cheaper or at different okay. times. So you have to find a way somehow to give value to locals, even if it becomes a busy tourist area. Do you guys have any like local benefit or local values for residents yet? Not so much. Um, you know, we're, we're doing what we can in the association. One thing we did the other day was well, with City Hall, we got all the kind of hotel front desk people and gave them a free tour downtown. And a lot of the people in Sendai are, you know, transferring. They come to Sendai to work or to study. So they're not born here or some people are born here. And it's just, you know, if you're born somewhere, it's not special. So they don't really know like where the stores are that you can paint some kokeshi doll or that you can go here and you can fry some fish. Like, you know, it's like a fast food kind of place, but it's kind of hidden. So it's having these people know more about the city. Actually, I want to see some of the operators, maybe yourself included, um, try and connect with these hotels. I think it's a big um, chance, even giving them like a free tour just to know about the city because when they need to hire someone, you're going to be the only one that they know, right? <laughs> Making these local connections is, um, you know, so important. And now we're living in an age where there's too much information, right? And the tour guide or the company or the concierge is a person that has to kind of narrow it down. You can do this by asking questions or, you know, making your own kind of summary guide. But now we just have too much information. You know, Google, like, you know, ramen restaurant. How many restaurants are going to pop up on your Google map? <laughs> <laughs> and also the uh, just uh, word of mouth is so important, right? If I look at some local restaurant I'm thinking about and all this, it's, you know, five-star reviews. But my friend said, eh, it wasn't that good. There might be 500 people that said it's amazing, but I trust my friend, so I'm not going to go. Yeah. <laughs> this is something we notice, especially with international residents or international visitors, is they kind of change their plans along the way. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is when yep. you're doing destination consulting, this always shocks local businesses and local DMOs that you're saying, listen, the international visitor, if they hear from another visitor that this place is good, they're going to change their plans and go there. Um, the value of that that person to person uh, 
opinion is really, really strong, right? Especially with the international residents or visitors. So I think we need a little bit more flexibility um, for businesses and destinations in Japan. So if you can get people to recommend, especially appealing to locals, giving locals value, and then they recommend their local place, wow, that's a win, right? We, we've done it. Yeah. We can get people here uh -huh. more. I think guest houses and youth hostels, you know, have got this figured out. Every time you go to the lobby, right, they have that kind of handmade map of the neighborhood. Oh, this is Mr. Tanaka's place. He has a good sushi or something like that. Or here's a little local shrine. But the big, the bigger hotels are not, you know, maybe they want to protect this luxury image or something. But um, you got to be friendly, right? You got to, you got to tell people where to go, you know, um, because they're asking, you know, where can I go eat? And they you know, oh, well, we have a restaurant on the second floor. No, no, no. Where can I go out and <laughs> down and eat, you know? And sometimes they don't know. And that's just, uh, you know, so doing these kind of programs or teaching them in some ways is so important because these are like the frontline people, right? And Sendai is a place like we do have repeaters. We have people that fall in love with it. But also if, if they don't know about the city, they're not going to recommend it, right? These frontline people are their, like ambassadors. Some of them are, you know, just part-time workers, which is fine. But their role is so necessary to share this information. So these like gatekeepers yeah. are the ones that we really need to connect with, make sure they're doing a good job. Yeah. Same as tour guides. And, and us and our role as people working in tourism in our local area, we know so much and people often ask us, where do you recommend? Like Hiroshima has like a million okonomiyaki places. That's our local dish, right? Um, but people always say, but what do you recommend? You know, and it probably for you, because you're a sake expert, you must get people asking, which one do you recommend? Because like you said, there's so much choice, right? Exactly, right. And it's hard when you're talking about restaurants, right? Because of course the food is very important, but you're talking about the price, the service, the atmosphere is really big. If you're a tourist, you want to sometimes have that Japanese feel, that Japanese style restaurants. So, um, you know, sake quite similar as well. Yes, the sake tastes great, um, but what's the story behind it? How was it served? Is it served in some little clay um, ochoko or is it maybe in a wine glass? And both of those are good, but it has to match kind of the atmosphere. I think that's that's so true about the story, right? Like um, I have so many stories in my head and I try not to recommend the same places all the time because I have so many stories and so many great recommendations. So if somebody asks me and I said, well, you know, if they're vegan, definitely there's a, a few places I would always recommend because it's limited choice. Um, but if they're not vegan, they can eat anything. I would try to send them to different places, you know, around the city. And they all have good stories, you know. So I'm trying to document and log it even in my own brain so I can kind of spread out where people go. But it has to be easy to get to. It yeah. has to be consistent. I think mm. we're, we're finding now during coronavirus some places maybe they're not busy in the morning and they'll close for the whole day and uh, this is the same in rural areas right like they're they're not consistent in how often they're open and if i'm recommending that to the visitor and they're renting a car or they're spending an hour to get there uh, i want to make sure they're going to be open because i don't want people to be disappointed right exactly yeah you have to take care of the people you know, here in Japan, you also get the, they have this, uh, this was kind of a culture shock to me, this Teikyubi, their, their off day, they have a restaurant, and sometimes it's just closed one day a week, which is great. I don't think people should work every single day, even if it's a family restaurant, but it was just something that doesn't happen in the U.S., and oh, it's always open, and then like, um, sometimes they just take a, you know, holiday just uh, off, and they'll, they, it's not on their website or anything, it's just a handwritten note on the door that says, I'm closed today. Or like I went fishing, so I'll be back later. Well, I'm I'm from Hawaii. That's quite usual, right? The surf's up. You've got uh, shops that say, "Sorry, surf's up. Come back tomorrow." <laughs> Only in the beach areas, though. Yeah. Uh, we've got a great comment from Stephen. Stephen said, "Really long comment. Absolutely fantastic. This human connection that's being talked about is all the more important in these changing times. I live near a historic shrine in Katorishi, 
Katori Jingu, and I am always happy to welcome visitors to my home when we can tour this exceptional area. Who knows? There may be even more time for Kusadango and Genmaicha at my home. Welcome to Katorishi. How so nice. Thank you, Steven. Um, I think that's so true, right? As a local resident, especially as a local international resident or as a local resident who speaks English or another language, being welcoming to visitors or other people who maybe are moving new to your area, that can be a huge benefit to the whole local brand. Um, I often, I don't know about you, but I often meet international visitors in Hiroshima who are so happy to talk to somebody because they say Japanese people are so polite and I've spent two weeks in Japan and I haven't talked to anybody. You uh, know, <laughs> it's really sad. You know, there's... um. Of course, we have a lot of Japanese tour guides that speak perfect English, but sometimes you want someone from your own country showing you around. Um, you know, I went to Czech Republic two, two years ago, and our tour guide was American, and some people in the group are like, I want a Czech person to guide me, but it's like, I mean, both are good. But if it's American, it's easy to communicate. I can ask him or her, like, the real questions I want to know that you might be embarrassed to ask, like, a local. Like, do they... Do they really pray at the shrine like this or do people not do that? You know, oh, they're like, they'll tell you like, oh, all the Japanese people wash their hands like this. And I'm like, some people don't do it, you know. <laughs> so um, I think both have value. Um, yeah. One of, one of really the things that I, I loved about your tour, um, which I often suggest to local guides as well, is try to connect your stories about the local areas to where the guest comes from. So, uh, for example, in your tour, you're talking about they had fires in this area every year in March. And then is that the same in other countries? I think now California, pretty much every season, is it March as well, has fires okay. that yep. are devastating. Mm -hmm. um, so that connection to the past that connection to where they're from and where you're touring for them. I think making those connections is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I always, you know, tell the guide as well, think of when you travel abroad, how happy are you when somebody says something about Japan or says something about where you're from? I mean, that connection to you and your life as you're traveling, I and mean, that's what everybody's looking for, right? I totally agree. There's there's two points I want to add on to that. Actually, I made this mistake. Like I guide a lot of Americans, so a lot of Americans are not so familiar with Buddhism. And here in Japan, Buddhism and Shintoism, you know, how are they different kind of thing. So I'd usually do a spiel about what a temple is and that kind of thing. And I was guiding some tourists from Thailand. And I started telling them about Buddhism. And they're like, we know what Buddhism is. <laughs> we have 99% Buddhists in our country. I'm like, oh. I went on a little bit to talk, you know, try and fix it. Well, how is your temple different than a Japanese temple? So, you know, we fixed it. But you have to know who your audience is. And then one problem we have, especially with volunteer guides, is they're they just know so knowledgeable. They want to share so much. And it's okay to, you know, share what you want to share. But you have to, you have to think, what does the other person want to hear? It's not what you want to say. What does the other person want to hear? More important. You might be really into some long history about the you know, samurai, but if you look at their face and they're just like, uh, when is he going to stop? You got to move on to the next topic. That's so true. Um, mm -hmm. We were doing a tour guide training in Hiroshima and we happened upon an Australian couple who was walking around the castle. And so they were walking with us and, and one of the guides um, was just listening. He did not say one word for five minutes. And the Australian guy was just talking at him about where he's from and what he thinks. And at the end of five minutes, the Australian guy says to him, you're going to be a great guide. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, that is exactly true. Yes. He didn't say anything. He was just listening. And That's then... He, well, yeah. he needed to talk, you know, so being a case to case kind of experience where you're just listening or you're making connections for them or mm -hmm. you're finding things about where you are that connect to their interests. 
-hmm. It's so case by case. And that is so hard because like you said, a lot of uh, guides, they know so much. So they want to tell you everything, but there's no way the visitor can connect to that, right? I think a lot of Japanese guides, um, they want to be very professional, and many of them are, but they're kind of embarrassed or just don't think it's right to share their own story. You know, you say you were born here in this city, you know, and you're like 30-something years old. I haven't heard anything about you. I haven't heard like, oh, I used to go to this restaurant or I used to go to this school or... I want to hear that personal story as well. Living here in Sendai for seven years, I have a lot of stories. So like when I recommend a restaurant, I could say like, well, I used to live over there for two years and I come here at night after work, da 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 Or I come out here, I found this shrine walking drunk one night, you know, or these you know, crazy stories. So yeah, I want to hear the more personal stories of people and I want to encourage definitely Japanese guides to share a little bit more of that information. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of your interesting stories, which I came across, or you shared with me, is about the Inari Shrine, the haunting, the Halloween one. Can you tell uh-huh. us about that? <laughs> sure. So I love history here, and I realized when I was volunteering at the city museum, not everyone likes history, and that's fine. So how can we make it interesting? And um, I got kind of into these ghost stories, as you mentioned, uh, what Matt Alts, I've uh, you know read his work. And here in Sendai, there is this... Not a lot of this information in Japanese or English. I really had to dig deep to find these kind of stories, but these are the like juicy, interesting stuff. So the, the shrine you're referring to is there's Inari shrines all over Japan, but this one behind the tennis courts at the base of the castle, across from the International Center, um, is a shrine for um, a horse. Date Masamune, if you look at the statue up on the castle, he's riding this horse, and the horse name was Goto. And it was the most loyal horse he went to battle with it 15 20 years like they were inseparable but the horse was getting older and when date masamune had to go fight in the osaka siege in 1614 1615 he had to leave his horse goto behind but goto realized he's not going to come back for me or maybe i have served my purpose and i'm no longer used for it we don't know how true this story is of course but the horse was shocked realized it I can't do anything for Date Masamu anymore, jumped off the castle cliff and killed itself. And Date Masamune was just petrified. I can't believe my horse did this. And they made a shrine for the horse at the base of the castle there. <laughs> so this is not really, you know, I don't know any ghost horse stories, but these kind of, um, you know, some of them are tragic, some of them are dark. Um, they're quite interesting to hear, especially as Americans, we want to hear these kind of, uh, you know, stories or stories about like crime, you know, these kind of things, but they have a, a deeper meaning. It teaches you something about the history or the culture or some big mistake that you don't want to repeat again. Um, so I've been just researching these kind of stories and sometimes I write some little, um, you know, post about them, or I do have a tour, you know, like a dark Sendai tour, I call it. I usually bust it out on Halloween or during the summer nights, and it show you some of these places around Sendai. It's a very walkable city here, so compact, no hills, so it's perfect for tour guiding as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things that a lot of visitors don't realize is how easy it is to access Sendai and the Tohoku area um, if you fly into Tokyo, right? Exactly, yeah. Well, Tokyo, you're going to get to Narita Airport or maybe Haneda, which is much nicer, but hard to get to. But basically, uh, Shinkansen bullet train, 90 minutes. That's it. 90 minutes here to Sendai or one hour flight, you know, from uh, Haneda or Narita will get you here. And it's not like you go to the airport, then you have to take an hour train. Our train is only about 20 minutes and it takes you right to the city center. So totally accessible, super easy to get here. Um, there's even a ferry that goes to like Nagoya and Hokkaido. We'll stop here. So if you want a different way to get here, if money's a, an issue, you can even take um, highway buses in the afternoon or I don't recommend it, but those night buses where you're going to wake up with a broken neck and then in the morning. <laughs> but yeah, some of those are really cheap, you know, like 3000 yen. Like sometimes you could find these super deals from Tokyo. So super easy to come here. We have different types of hotels, you know, from luxury to guest houses. So some people even come here just for a day trip, which I, w- I don't recommend. I want you to stay longer. But being 90 minutes, especially if you have one of those JR passes, 
totally doable, especially during like Tanabata or big festivals or something. All the hotel rooms are booked. But if you could just come here and then, you know, go on with the Shinkansen, I've met people that have done that and it, it works fine, you know. Totally. Thank you for uh, <laughs> pushing that for us. Of course. Uh, it looks like you were an expert on alcohol. Uh, <laughs> you have covered, you've written articles on whiskey, on beer, on sake. Can you give us a little introduction of some of the alcoholic treats in your area? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know if an expert, I just drink a lot. <laughs> After I was an ALT, I worked for Fukushima Prefecture. And one of my main jobs was actually promoting sake um, overseas. I didn't know anything about sake. I didn't even really like sake, I thought. Then I started trying some of the good stuff. And uh, as a tour guide, I fell in love with the, the story, the history, the little different rice varieties. There's just so much to learn. And that really kind of got me hooked. And then from that, Okay, I'm a little bit interested in whiskey. I'm a little bit interested in beer, this kind of thing. Here in Sendai, we have Akiyu Winery. We have Katsuyama Sake Brewery. We have another brewery as well um, by the station. Um, we Moritami Brewery. We've got Kirin Beer. You know, Kirin Beer is a chain, but you can go there and you can do a factory tour of the beer factory. Who doesn't like that kind of thing? And we have Nika Whiskey. Nika whiskey is famous across the world. There's two Nika whiskey distilleries. One is outside Sapporo in Hokkaido, and one is right here in Sendai. I think this one is more accessible. You could take a train about 40 minutes to an area called Sakunami. It's also a hot spring resort. The water's good there. Here we have the nice flowing rivers and beautiful nature. It's great contrast with these red brick buildings. But yeah, if you like to drink, you know, I think Sendai is a wonderful place to do it. And then we've got all the restaurants downtown as well. Oh, we have a craft brewery and another one coming soon. So yeah, we got, I think we got all the check boxes for the alcohol here. <laughs> done some articles for Sake Today. Um, oh, yes. You've written articles on Japan Travel and mm -hmm. as well as Visit Miyagi, is it? Yeah, yeah Visit Miyagi is a wonderful site. I, I mean, all the sites and information is great, but Visit Miyagi is set up by the prefecture. And it's really targeted, you know, for inbound tourists. It's not some Japanese website that was translated into English. There's not even a Japanese version. And what they do is, my friend is running this site, or my friend's company. They're hiring locals to write the articles, or they're asking locals to write the articles. So it's really that personal opinion. I recommend this, and this is why. So it's quite a unique perspective. It's not one person or one tourism division writing it. They're... They have 30, 40 writers introduced this kind of thing. And they said, you, you know about history, you know about traditional arts, and you know about alcohol, so you're going to write this. I'm happy to help how I can. Um, I think, I mean, we, we run Get Hiroshima, a regional uh, website also with, you know, original articles. Um, we notice that so much that people respond to that really positively. This is not just a translation. This is an original article in that language. And I think that's something that I hope to see more and more in different destinations because people respond to that on a different level. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, the official sites, official content, but the more the different styles of the different languages, it's the nuance is a bit different, right? Definitely. It's a good um, it's a good combination because it's, you have these personal opinions, but you have more than one. You know, you have the local opinions, but then you have the government money behind it and, uh, you know, building up the site and building up the SEO. So it's. It's the best of both worlds. You got the personal opinion, but you have that money and that advertising and that promotion that really draws in the people making it the official site. So I just love that site, and I'm going to check out your site a little bit later. <laughs> and please come and visit. You you would respond coming back to the area after being in Iwakuni. Um, oh, let's yeah. let's talk about your community work a little bit. Um, of course, talking about sustainability, and you sent this to me as well, and this is a big part of this series, is how do we balance the needs of people and the needs of the planet and make a profit so that we can continue forward. And so it's not just about environmental concerns, which I think is kind of a misunderstanding of sustainability sometimes. Um, and you've been very active in your community. Can you tell us first about your blood donations? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, this is just a, a thing I do. I used to donate blood at the Red Cross Center in the U.S. And coming to Japan, I'm wondering, can I do it? Um, 
you can find some stuff online. Actually, I wrote a really nice article, I guess, that tells you all how to do it. Um, it's mostly the same. There's a couple things that are different, but it's in Japanese. That's mostly for safety reasons, they say. You know, you have some blood squirting out, you don't speak Japanese, whatever. But yeah, it's something I do, and they really appreciate it. There's not a lot of foreigners that donate blood. So just getting out there. I really want to show our community, our you know, the city, that the foreigners are part of the city as well. And often we are the biggest promoters. So getting out there and being visible, whether it's like picking up trash or donating blood or doing some you know, charity, is so, so important. And now with um, Corona, I'm just wondering, you know, what can we do? And sometimes you can't, sometimes just stay home and put a mask on and, you know, that can't stay in a big difference as well. Um, here, um, our first kind of Corona outbreak happened at a popular um, chain bar. And, you know, a lot of foreigners go there, so do Japanese. So, you know, you look at Twitter or something like that, a couple people were just a very, very small number saying coronavirus came here because of the foreigners. You know, some people think like that. And this was really dangerous because if people start to believe that, you know, that's not good. So I said, how can we fix this? And how can we also help the community? Talking with my friend Triceat, we decided let's donate some money to the food bank. But let's do it big. Let's get a lot of money. And at the same time, let's try and fix this, this issue of foreigners, um, shine them in a positive light. So him and I, very quickly, about two or three weeks, we got Gojimon um, in, like almost $5,000 from only foreigners that lived here in Sendai. And then we just called the newspaper and, you know, let them know, here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing. And it made a big impact. And it inspired a lot of Japanese people to think more about the community. And a lot of the foreigners here, you know, we all help each other. But some people said, I've never donated to charity before. This is the first time I did it. So especially as longer residing um, people here in Japan, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of senpai. We, we can influence people. So if someone donates once or someone donates blood or someone does volunteering, it's kind of a compoundy thing. Okay, now they'll do it again. Now they'll do it again. Or maybe they'll start their own project. What I want to do here in Sendai is really support other people's projects. I'll kind of take the lead on my own kind of stuff. But I want to support the future leaders. One thing I'm noticing here, I'm not sure if it's happening in Hiroshima, is this kind of brain drain, they call it. You have these really talented, skilled people, and they can't get a visa, or they can't find the right job, and they'll move to Tokyo, or they'll just move back to their country. And it's such a missed opportunity with tourism and, you know, um, just community. And again, this is part of sustainability, is keeping the right people that want to stay. But for whatever reason, they, they can't. So I, I always get these emails, hey, I'm looking for a job. And I just go into panic mode. I've, <laughs> I was able to help a friend recently. He found a job on his own, but we were getting him into the right, the right ways. I'm like, oh, no, not Phil. Don't, don't let him leave, not Phil. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we've been so happy over the years to hear from people who they got their job, they got their apartment, sometimes they got their boyfriend or girlfriend uh, through our website because we post classifieds, we have people exchanging things they don't want, uh, we post about events that they might go and meet other people. And I, I think uh, showing that you are positive in your action as a resident, as an international resident, definitely has a great knock-on effect. It was so wonderful to see this. Um, how did you get out the food that you had bought? How did people come and collect it? Um, did you go through other agencies or did you deliver it directly? You know, I don't want to take too much credit for this um, because, you know, the food bank is the one that really did all the hard work. Um, we were thinking about it different ways. You know, you can make this, this GoFundMe or this Kickstarter or something, but, you know, they take the 10 or 20 percent and we wanted all the money to go there. We are not an MPO. We're not an NGO. You know, we just wanted to get cash. And we talked to the food bank. You know, we did set it up with them and they said, you know, the easiest way would just to get money because when they get money, they can buy things in bulk. They can get, um, you know, the best price and they know what they need. We, the food bank, not only helping Japanese people, but helping the foreigners, a lot of students 
lost their part-time jobs at restaurants and things like that. And we have a lot of Muslim students from like, Indonesia or Malaysia. You know, they have to eat food that's halal. So the food bank took some of the money and bought that specific kind of food. You know, I want to, again, listen to what do they need, not what I think they need. Same as a tour guide, right, as we talked. What does the other person want to hear? What do they need? Not what you want to necessarily give. So the, the best option was just, in the fastest way, was just to get money. So that's how we did it. Great, great effort and really good result. Um, I think that was the one of the most heartbreaking things when schools closed, and I, I know this happened abroad as well. A lot of kids who are kind of food insecure lost their one meal of the day. And I think even in Japan, there are families that it's, it's very hard to ask for help because of a, a pride thing mm. or it's just it's not really part of the culture. And I think people feel embarrassed. Um, so helping out with food banks in Tokyo Second Harvest um, oh, yeah. is a great organization, right? Who helps get food to people in need. Um, food bank around Japan. It's wonderful. You could connect with them. There's a Salvation Army in Hiroshima. Sometimes does organization as well. This is so worthwhile. Thank you for doing that. I just wanted to follow up really quick on that. You know, right now we've only been able to do it once, but we're still connected with the food bank. And because I did that, some of the people that had donated have started their own campaigns. So there's been two or three other people that have done their own donation drives Wonderful. and raised even more money for the food bank because I started it, my friend and I. So it, even if you can only, ideally you keep doing something more and more and more, but even if you only do something once, someone else can maybe learn from it and be inspired. So I'm really happy and I just want to, it has me thinking, what else can I do in my community? What else can I do? So now I'm working on a project with a small museum actually related to Sendai Air Raid. I think this is an important part of our history, but there's no English. So I'm working with the museum to get English. It's not only just translate. Anyone can do that. You have to go through all the government bureaucracy and you have to meet all these different people. And it's, it's really complicated and it's been going on for a couple of months, but it's, it's getting there. I don't want to, I think it's impossible to have a perfect situation in Japan, but I'm just aiming for better. And if it's better, hey, it's better than it was before. So that's one of my new projects I've been working on. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And uh, it's so easy to, to say it's not good enough, it's not good enough. But it's, I think, really positive to just look at what things are. People are making an effort to make a little bit better and encourage that and be like that's great you're doing that let's do that more you know and hopefully other people will also be inspired to try little by little step by step where it's possible right yeah you know i want i want all the museums here to do a better job and be more like international international museums and really welcome tourists but you need an example and you have to start small so i targeted this small museum and then i want to use them as an example and put some pressure on the big museums. Hey, look what this this museum did. Why don't you do it? Yeah. So um, this step-by-step uh, -step is exactly, totally agree. Where can it lead? And use your past success to leverage your way forward. Yeah. It's so important. Wonderful. And a, a great legacy in tourism and for the destination that you're leaving, right? So when you look back five years and you're like, yeah, I kind of got that project started. That feels good, you know, and, and so many people have benefited or the museum people were really happy. Like it's a really good, feel good thing for you as well about using your time efficiently, right? Agreed. Yeah. Uh, we have a few more minutes. If people can visit your area, maybe next spring, uh, is there anything you'd recommend them definitely try to do while they're there? Sure. If you're coming in spring, I do want to point out since we're higher up north that the, um, the hanami, the sakura, right? The flowers bloom maybe about two or three weeks later. So we actually get some tourists that go to Tokyo just to see the cherry blossoms and they miss them. So they come up here. Um, Sendai, again, so easy just to walk around. We probably have about three, three parks that have cherry blossoms like within 20 minutes walking distance of Sendai. We're not famous for cherry blossoms. We do have one park that's quite famous, but um, they're just so accessible. And that's a really key point here. Um, otherwise, 
what else can you do here? I mean, everything's pretty much open. If you're outside the winter, we have our museums. We can go to Matsushima, Yamadera. Shiogama has really wonderful sushi. But what I like and why、um, I like doing walking tours is just walk around. You walk around the city, walk around the town, you really get that feeling. You can check off the most important things with our pamphlets, but you can find these little hidden shrines or hidden cafes. And、um, don't always go with a full schedule. So,、um, otherwise, check out the websites,、uh, sendaiexperience.com, which I work, or you can find me online. I don't do a lot of social media, but if you want to, you'll track me down, I'm sure. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. And you guys have some really original tours and experiences. Wagashi, of course, which I always recommend because it's, it just happens to be naturally gluten free and、mm-hmm. naturally vegan, most of them,、um, yes. less sugar. So it's, it's a kind of a healthier sweet and it's so beautiful how it's prepared. So it's nice、yes. to see you guys are focused on Wagashi. Stand up and paddle tours. I love stand up and paddle in Hiroshima、yep. on the rivers.、Mm-hmm. It's a nice、uh, fossil fuel free way to <laughs> see your city, and it's so quiet and peaceful. So, there's so many great things to see and do there. I hope I can visit someday too. Wonderful. I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Justin, for all your insights and great talk about tourism. I, I think、uh, with people like you,、uh, we feel better about the future of tourism after COVID. So keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. Thank yeah, you, Jay. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, everyone, for joining.、Uh, tomorrow, 6 p.m., we're talking to a vegan baker in Osaka. Rosa, so please join us again tomorrow. Everyone, have a good day. Take care. See you. Bye. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. See ya. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You can find out more information about me at inboundambassador.com and have a look at buymeacoffee.comslash JJ Walsh if you want some bonus material and to support the work that I'm doing. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.